It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Luke. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to uh, walk through the Bible with you today in Acts 3. So if you've got a Bible or an app that you use, that's where we're going to be. We've been walking through the book of Acts the last few weeks, going through a super cool story today. It's one of my favorites in the book of Acts. Um, and yeah, listen, if you're watching online, we're having, the, the internet here is having a temper tantrum again like it did a couple weeks ago. So if it gets unbearable. This is being recorded. We will upload it this afternoon, um, but we're hoping that this works for the, for the sermon today. Um, so Acts 3, before we jump in, you know, we say from the pulpit quite a bit that we believe as a church that Jesus is the answer to all of our ultimate questions, our biggest questions that we carry. And a lot of those questions aren't ones that we really vocalize or, or say out loud. They're just ones that we kind of hold inside and really never even take the time to think about. Like, who am I? Who am I is a pivotal question. We don't really ask people. We don't walk around and just spout that out. But it is something that we carry around inside of us. Another one is, do I have what it takes? And actually, a lot of people believe that that is mankind's primary question. Do I have what it takes? Do... Um, am I enough? Am I sufficient? Do I have what it takes to be a mom, a dad, a leader? Do I have what it takes to be successful in this career? And because this is one of our bigger questions, one of our biggest fears is, no, we don't have what it takes. One of our biggest fears is that others are going to find out that we are a fraud and that we are lacking, that they are going to see us as we already painfully see ourselves as just simply not being enough. I tend to agree with that. I do think that's a common question. I find when I sit down with people. But I do also think that this goes beyond just our normal day, and it extends to how we are witnesses to the ends of the earth. We saw a few weeks ago Christ speaking to his disciples and calling us to be witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, to witness, to tell the story, to be gospelers, to be message carriers, to be evangelists. And, man, a lot of times, I think a lot of people just don't think they have what it takes. We say to ourselves, I don't have what it takes to lead that person away from darkness. I don't have what it takes to lead them away from addiction. I don't have what it takes to lead them away from their wickedness into a relationship with Jesus. I don't have the words for it. I don't have the experience for it. I don't have the influence, the credibility. I don't have the courage for it. I'm just not enough. I don't have what it takes. And this is an infection that gets probably more inflamed when we're talking about someone who's aggressive, someone who is far from Jesus but aggressive, or academic. Maybe they're just smarter than we are. Maybe they're more influential. And we think that anyone else would do a much better job of carrying the gospel to them than we would, anyone. So a big question I want you to put on the dashboard as we travel through this passage is, are you enough for the hardest of hearts around you? Do you have what it takes? Or do you need something like courage? Do you need more education? Do you need more, I don't know, faith? What is it that you feel like you need? I mean, I just want you to pretend for a moment that you are in a conversation with somebody that is close to the kingdom. And I'm, I'm going to rip that phrase off from Jesus. He's talking to a guy in Mark 12, I believe. And this guy's flirting with the edges of salvation. And it comes out of Jesus' mouth, 
you, sir, are not far from the kingdom. So I want you to imagine you're talking to a person like that. You've been around people like that. They feel like, it feels like they're one conversation away from becoming a radical Christian. They're one big problem being untied from being a disciple, right? They're right there. You feel like it's, it's ripe and there's this opportunity to extend the gospel to them. Not a perfect opportunity, but an opportunity. And frankly, there are no perfect opportunities, right? If you've ever been in this position, it's always like it's time-bound. You don't have much time with them. There's a lot of distractions spinning around. There's no such thing as a perfect opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus, right? But I think you know what I'm talking about. I want you to imagine being in that place. Here's what I want you to ask yourself. What is it that is convincing you that you do not have what it takes? What is telling you to stay silent, right? For me, because I ask myself the same questions I ask you, I think it's influence, credibility. Sometimes I feel like I need more of. I feel like I have the right words. I feel like I can do a pretty good job of explaining the gospel story from different angles and using different words for different people. I think I even have enough thick skin to be rejected. A decade of campus ministry will do that to you. I think I'm okay being abandoned, but I still feel like a lot of times, just being honest between you and me, that when I'm around people who are close to the kingdom or maybe just far from Jesus, I feel like I just need more time. I need more street cred with them, more credibility, more influence. I know that's not common. I think the more people I talk to, they struggle with not feeling like they know enough. I don't know the right words, Luke. Or I I am kind of a little concerned about being rejected in that moment. This is why this is such a cool passage today, because it's going to show us that 2,000 years ago, believers carried the same high-value questions with them as we have today, asking themselves, Do we have what it takes to extend this gospel to the ends of the earth? And let me just tell you right now, I think the answer might surprise you. The answer is going to surprise you. Today we're going to see what happens when a tightly knit church steps out into the world and preaches the gospel. Not just the gospel to save, but the gospel to sustain. And we do believe that this is what it means to be a gospel-centered church, right? Um, We say that we are gospel-fascinated people. What that really means is we believe that the, the gospel is the power of salvation as we preach it into the city and lost ears hear it. Faith comes by hearing a beautiful story told. We do believe that. But we also believe that the gospel is powerful to sustain to take Christians who already love Jesus, but actually show us the gospel is the depth of our satisfaction, where we find a content, rested, peaceful life. So we gospel the lost and we gospel the saved. We're evangelists in all directions. That's what we believe it means to be a gospel-centered church. So this church is stepping out into the world, and this is what it says in Acts 3. We're going to jump in in verse 1. I'm going to pause for a moment to moment to maybe pick apart some of this. And this is the word of the Lord for us. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Super cool. Okay, what's going on is they're still on the old calendar where 3 p.m. was just the time you went to go to prayer, right? 
And ironically, that happens to also be the same time of day where Jesus says, it is finished. I don't know if that's on purpose or not. But the context that we have here is a moment where devout Jews are devoutly going to the temple to be devout. That's what's happening right now. And and your average devout Jew looked at a couple key things that they wanted to be devout in. One was prayer, and the other was giving alms, just giving money, right? Giving money to those who needed it. So this would have been a profitable spot to hang out if you were crippled, if you were lame from birth. So this is the picture we have. This guy is before these city gates that are 70 foot tall. That is pretty tall. I think that's taller from the floor to the ceiling in this gaping auditorium. It's actually taller than that, 70 foot tall gates. And they had a special kind of brass around them. Um, I know brass is not more valuable to us than gold and silver, but back then this kind of brass was. And some historians say that these were the most beautiful gates in the city, right? And then this smelly guy, this guy lame from birth, this man who is crippled, just sitting there, smelling like poverty, unable to walk. What I want you to get is this incredible contrast between a broken man and a beautiful gate. Because that's what we have, and I don't want that to be lost. And this guy would have been well known because they do this every day. This is how not just he made money, this is how his family would make money. So these devout Jews were used to seeing this guy. He's just Ralph. Ralph is there on Tuesdays. Ralph is there on Saturdays because Ralph is there every day. They know him. They probably gave money to him. They probably on other days ignored him. Some days they would have compassion. Other days they weren't. I don't think they were too different from us, right? It's just Ralph. And then he does this in verse 6. But Peter, after he has this guy's attention, said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is cool, right? He says, look at us. And then it got awkward because he says, I've got nothing for you. (laughs) Look at me. I've got no money for you. But he gave him something better. This is the question I'm going to have for this guy when I see him in heaven. Because I'm going to see him in heaven. I'm going to ask him, at what point did you know it was okay to stand up? I mean, just think about it. He'd never done this before. Crippled from birth. At what point did you think it was okay to stand up and trust something that had never worked before? I mean, did you feel like popping? Did you feel like movement? Was it warm? Was it tingly? Did you just have this strong faith? Did you have just this supernatural courage to just give it the old college try? Was it Peter helping you up? I mean, what was it? When did you know? I would love to know the answer to that. But what is cool here is Luke, who is a medical professional, let's remember that. He's a doctor before he is a historian. He's talking about his ankles and his feet instantly reconstructing to the point where he could leap. I know it doesn't sound dramatic. No one's coming up from the dead right now or blind and now they can see. But listen, I've had a 
gang of ankle and foot injuries over 20 years of hard charging. I mean, I have hyperextended, I have fractured, I have sprained, pulled, ripped, just about everything you can under the knee, right? So I can attest that there's a complicated architecture to your feet and your ankles. Did you know that you have 26 bones and 33 moving joints in your feet and ankles? We just think, yeah, I got a couple joints down there. You have 33. You have over 100 ligaments holding all of that mess together. It's amazing. And did you know that if you leap and you land on your foot, it could, depending on your weight, apply up to 600 pounds of pressure? That's a lot. It's a weight-bearing marvel. No one, no way someone can go from shriveled, unused tendons, calcified ligaments, atrophied musculature, no way someone can go from that to just jumping up and down on something they've never used before. Think about that. I'll tell you what, if I was there watching this, if I was part of the crowd, the cynic in me would have wanted my money back. (laughs) I'd have thought, no way that guy was legit. I've been giving him money. He could walk the whole time. We've been had. I want my money back, right? But they all had a bunch of wondering Amazement. You want to know why? Because it's Ralph. Everybody knew Ralph for years, curled up like a ball, asking for money. Here's what's cool, totally sidetracked. When Ralph was being knit together in the womb, as it says in Psalm 139, is he was being thoughtfully and mindfully constructed. He was designed for this very moment. That's awesome. The moment where he would dance and praise God's handicraft in him, leaping jumping, this guy, this day, this moment, where he experiences a depth of joy that outpasses a lifetime of sadness. We get to see this beautiful moment where what is broken is reversed and made whole again. So cool. And Peter says, what I do have, I give to you. What exactly is that? What is it that they gave to this guy? You see, they had this saving and sustaining faith that came as a gift from God, right? Faith is a gift. When you trusted in Jesus, and even today, when you step way out and trust and have faith in Jesus, that's a gift. It's a gift. You didn't come to some conclusion that he didn't hand you. You didn't buy that and purchase it with your obedience. It is a gift, And we know that this is what happened because he's about to say here in verse 16, he's going to say, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name. And the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So Jesus' spirit gives this saving and healing faith to this congenital cripple. They gave joy to this man which is much more valuable than all the brass and all the gold and all the silver on this beautiful gate. Now this man is the most beautiful thing that everyone can see. And he's leaping up and down on a faint image of what his body will look like when it is totally glorified in heaven. You see, when a miracle enters the picture, when there's a miracle in your Bible and you're reading it, you have this, you have this moment where it's almost like the curtains are pulled back, Right? And you can see what it will look like in heaven. You can see what it will look like when all of the sin is just extracted from whatever it is. And that's what we have here is a picture of our future where death becomes life. And what is crippled is now leaping 
What is mute can now speak. What is deaf can now hear. Bleeding stops. Depression stops. Shame is gone. Rejection stops. Hunger stops. Demons flee. This is what we have here. We have a picture of this. His voice is declaring God's kindness. And his legs are saying he is not a liar. But can we just admit, if we could just stand back and just look at this for a moment, what is obvious, witnessing to the ends of the earth would be a different ball game if we all had this type of power, right? If we all had this miracle power where we could touch broken things and amazingly they just are fixed, they are not broken anymore, that would get everybody's attention, right? That would earn a hearing, right? That's what we think. If I could just, dead bird laying on the ground, I could pick it up and throw it in the air and it flies off, people are going to listen to what I have to say. I walk up to your car, it can't start, it's not turning over. Put my hand on the hood and then it starts, you'll probably listen to anything I have to tell you. We think that this, this is what we need. This would make it to where we have what it takes to witness. I want you to hold that thought. I want you to hold that thought. It's going to be important for us as we move forward through this. This is a powerful passage here. Let's look at verse 11. It's about to get a little bit more powerful. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see now, or who you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled Okay, here's the overall sentiment that's rumbling around in the crowd. How did Peter do this? They're not even really paying attention to God, um, maybe a little bit less attention to the congenital cripple, but how did Peter do this? How, I mean, gosh, I knew Peter. I saw Peter. I didn't know he could do stuff like that. I mean, I knew he was a good guy, but, I mean, he just said something to that dude's ear. Did anyone hear what he said? He said something, and the guy got him and started jumping around. How did Peter do this? So Peter's really quick to say, I didn't do it. Don't pay attention to the guy leaping around. Don't even pay attention to me. God is, God is the one that does at work here. So what he's going to do is he's going to match this demonstration with a declaration. And that's going to be important for us as a church because a church unwilling to demonstrate the gospel we say with our mouths is a church that's asking the city to do what we say, but don't pay attention to how we live our lives. We don't want the declaration to match our demonstration. But without declaring it, there's actually no opportunity to repent or trust. Right? That's why Paul says, how are they going to hear without somebody preaching? Look, not, Knoxville needs words. Knoxville needs a church that can hand words, that can preach the gospel. But not words that are empty freight. Not words without backing to them. We're talking about a demonstration along with the declaration because this is a cripple healing gospel. It's a soul winning gospel. 
Let's look how he finishes this in verse 19. Verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God has made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Okay, there's a lot going on there, a lot of texture. I want to drill down on one thing, and that is the call to repent. The call to repent. He says it this way, repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent is a word that's got a ton of baggage, right? It sounds like we've plucked it straight out of the 19th century and we're just determined to keep using it as a church. And it has a very judgmental edge to it, which is why people don't recruit it into conversations they have with those who are far from Jesus, right? We, we will tend to invite people into Jesus without a call to repent because inviting somebody into something is not offensive. Nobody gets mad at you for inviting them into something. But repentance says there's blood on your hands. You did this, which Peter said several times. You did this. You have responsibility. You need to change. What you are doing is not right. right? But all repenting is, is it's a term of repositioning. It's a call to pivot away from a failing life of sin to a hospitable Jesus. It's a pivot, right? It's not some call to turn away from things that make you happy towards things that make you unhappy. It's actually the opposite. It is a call to turn from sin that cripples us to a God that heals cripples. It's a very different call. And I love how Peter reveals what repentance really is here. He, he says one thing. He says it brings peace and rest to his soul that feels the weight of past sins. That's why he's using the term where he says repentance blots out sins. That, that is noteworthy. Just that phrase, blots out sins. Back then, writings were on parchments and skins and scrolls, all different kinds of things. We'll call them a substrate, some sort of paper that people could write on. But you, could, you had different inks too, right? You had some ink that had a lot of bite a lot of grip, and once you wrote it on something, it's not going anywhere, like a Sharpie for us today, right? But then there were inks that you could write on there, and it would more or less sit on top of the parchment or the skin. And you could always come back later on with a wet cloth or a sponge and just wipe it off, and then it's gone. That's what he's talking about when he says blots out sins. Listen, I've got a whiteboard in my office. Let me just brag for a minute on my whiteboard, right? Because it's a great whiteboard. Check that. It is the biggest whiteboard you could buy. You cannot buy one that is bigger. 
and it is one of the more expensive ones I could find because I'm a nerd when it comes to whiteboards. It took a semi. A semi had to deliver it to our house, right, because it was too big and too heavy for these, these little trucks to drop off your packages. So two big guys bring it downstairs, and they, they set it up. It's huge, and it's not that garbage you get at Staples either where it's just like a bathroom wall, and it's just got ink on it forever. It's porcelain. It's magnetic. It's big league whiteboard. And I love this thing. I fill it up, man. It's full all the time. I run through markers like you wouldn't believe, especially like at the end of the year or in the summer, it's full of dreams and it's full of tasks. And I got a phone number up here and a little flow chart over here. When I'm on the phone, I'm taking notes on the whiteboard. It is full, right? And sometimes it could be a little overwhelming. I could stand back and go, Ooh, I look like a crazy person right now. I mean, there is so much stuff on this whiteboard. It's over the top. It's too much. But it's helpful. Every inch is covered. I want you to imagine sitting in front of a massive whiteboard with all of your sins displayed in detail, right? This board would have to be big, probably bigger than the one I have. Let's pretend that that board was big enough to cover Neyland Stadium, right? I said Neyland, not Nayland. Don't email me. But let's just say that it's a big whiteboard and every inch was covered with your sins. Of course, we know that would only get you to about 11 or 12 years old, right? So we're going to need more stadiums. So we're going to get more stadiums with more whiteboard wrapped around it and it's full of sins, right? But it's going to take, let's be honest, all the stadiums, not just all the, just all the stadiums full of whiteboards, just from top to bottom, left to right, full of your sins, Sins that probably people knew about that you did. I mean, sins that everyone kind of already knew. Sins that maybe only your closest friends knew about. Sins that you didn't even know about. Sins of commission. Sins of omission. Things that you should have done that you didn't. Horrible things that you thought. Not so bad, but still sinful things that you thought. Things that you said that were stupid. Things that you did that were stupid. Horrible things. Not everything. I want you to imagine all of it. The gift of repentance does not just bring an eraser to that. It is God giving you a different board altogether. You get Jesus' whiteboard, and that is never going to be filled. It's a blank slate forevermore. Forevermore, it's a blank slate. That's what repentance does. It blots out sins. You see, part of salvation is when you stop trusting yourself to clean your sins, to drag an eraser across it, just to fill it up again. But it's trusting that he alone does this despite our best attempts and our worst strategies, our sins are blotted out by his blood. Let me tell you, this brings a serious relief to people. This should bring a deep, indescribable sigh of relief. Once you believe that all of your past sins Your present sins and your future sins are blotted out. Your soul will dance like a cripple who just got his legs back. I mean, did you have a bad week? A sketch past? A dark secret? A really dark secret? The whiteboard is white. This is why I love what we see in Psalm 103. He says, he does not deal, he meaning God, does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression 
from us. That's amazing. That's amazing. Where do all those sins go, by the way, that he's removing? I mean, it's good news that sins are removed from us. It's amazing news to see where they go. The sins that are removed from you and me are placed in totality on the shoulders of one who we crippled outside the gates of the same city. One who cried out not for alms, for money, but for your forgiveness, for my forgiveness. One who did not ask for treasure, but gave us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We gave him all of our sins, and he blotted them out by his blood. So what it does is it brings rest to the soul. But he keeps going, and he says it brings refreshing days. It brings a refreshment to us because our souls can get very dehydrated and parched and needy, right? I know I tell stories about trail running illustrations. I'm not even a trail runner. And I know that every time I do, there's the punchline is I get lost, and that's because I get lost all the time because all trees look the same to me, right? So I'm constantly getting lost. When I go trail running, I'd rather somebody be with me because I think it would be a lot easier. But several years ago, I went to Big Ridge State Park, which is both big and it has a lot of ridges. And I was alone, and I shouldn't have been, and I got lost. And what should have been maybe just, you know, 45 minutes turned into about five hours of me running, probably in circles, looking for my pickup truck. And I did not bring any water with me, so I was dying. I mean, I was dying. I was parched. I was dehydrated. I was grumpy. I was mad at God. I was mad at myself. I was just mad. But this is what I remembered about two hours into it. I have in my truck, which was probably a balmy 90 degrees, right, I had half a can of flat coconut LaCroix sitting there waiting for me. Have you ever had coconut LaCroix? No, you haven't. You know why? Because it tastes like sunblock, and I'm pretty sure they just quit selling it. But it was there from days earlier. I didn't even finish it, and it was just warming, right? Flat, nasty and I couldn't wait to drink it. That's all I could think about was getting into that truck, breaking into it if I had to, and then just guzzling a coconut LaCroix. That's all I could think about. And it was the most satisfying thing I've ever had in my life. It was awesome. It was like I was created for that moment. It was like my throat and my stomach was made, handcrafted, to receive the joy of that moment. I would have paid anything for that LaCroix. Listen, when we pivot and reposition from sin to death, King Jesus will bring a refreshment to your soul that your soul was actually created to crave. You were created, designed to crave him. We were actually created to be parched and dehydrated in a life without him. That's the way we were made. Created to hunger in a life with no substance. We were created to find refreshment upon repentance. That's what repentance brings to the soul, a refreshing season. Because listen, when you're satisfied and refreshed and content, you'll be fine in the face of death, fine in the face of poverty, persecution, which this church is about to find out. You see, we hear the word repent and we think it's the sledgehammer of bad news, which is why we don't traffic in the word very often especially with those who need it the most. But it is the gift that brings peace and rest and refreshment to our souls. 
So go back to that person that you were imagining that is not far from the kingdom of God. Or maybe they are far from the kingdom of God. Maybe they couldn't be further. Maybe they're running headlong as fast as they can, the other direction, and yet God has put them on your heart. Here's the truth. You are not enough. You don't have what it takes. You cannot save them with your words. But what you do have, you can give to them. What you do have, you can give to them. The good news of a royal king who impoverished himself for villains. A majestic hero who allowed us to cripple him out of love for us. A kind servant, holy and righteous, as Peter says, who refreshes and brings rest to those who he loves, those who turn. He is our answer, promised from ages past, fathers and prophets before us, a kind Savior who will place our affections in the right place, who will care for us and never leave us, never reject us, never abandon us. The one who takes our sins and blots them out with his very own blood. One who hydrates and parched, shriveled soul. We can give people what we have. We can export what God has given us. You see, our problem isn't that we don't know enough words or even in the case that I said earlier, that I don't have enough credibility. That's not the problem. The problem is, as we try to export we do, what we don't have, we try to give what we don't have, which that's an impossible task. I think this is why evangelism is kind of seen by many people as a superpower, not really for mortal people, but something that only the elite in the church can do. If maybe you feel like you have some remaining sins on your whiteboard, that it's not totally clean. Maybe the surfacey stuff is clean, but you have some deep, hidden, dark sins that are there and can never be erased. If that's you, and you're not refreshed by God, but you're still longing, you're still parched, you're still empty, then isn't it true that when you tell people about the gospel, you feel like you're just selling something that's allegedly true, but not true for you? Doesn't it feel like that? like you're trying to tell people about Jesus and how awesome he is and how great the gospel is. You're trying to leap around and dance, but it's a hard sell because you yourself don't believe it. I've been there. I've been there. We describe joy and wonderment, but we're not totally convinced ourselves, so we're just bored. But look at this passage. Peter doesn't have a superpower here. He doesn't have any superpower. He's got the Holy Spirit. Newsflash, you do too. We've got the same Holy Spirit he does. It's the same Holy Spirit that lifts Jesus from the grave. We have. He's just being obedient here. He's gospel fascinated for sure. He's vocal for sure. But his deepest satisfactions are in Jesus. He's a refreshed man. His soul is at peace. His soul is at rest. So the world can't bring him any danger or any sadness or fear or anxiety in this moment. I know personally I am my most effective when I'm content and satisfied. That's when I'm my most effective, when I actually have what it is I want to give to others. See, Knoxville needs a church that has something to give, but we can't give what we don't have. We can't give what we don't have. And so listen, if you don't have the faith, if you don't have this faith, this trust that Jesus is enough, and that's where you struggle, that's where the break is, you're just not determined, you're not resolved that he is as satisfying, more satisfying than anything this world can give, did you know that you can cry out and ask for more faith? 
that he'll give you more faith. It is a gift. When we lack it, we can ask for more. This is the conversation Christ has in Mark 9 with a dad who's struggling. And Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's effectively what he's doing. And this is where I am with the gospel most days. I'm a believer. I'm bought in. I believe in Jesus. I'm not wavering, right? And I need help in my unbelief. And Peter was the same. And you are the same. We need more faith. You see, Knoxville doesn't need a church that's really loud, just one that's really convinced. So we have room to repent as a church. We have room to repent. You see, repentance is a gift, and it's actually something we do, too. It's a rhythm. I would say that repentance is the primary rhythm for the growing disciple, right? If you're not turning, pivoting, repositioning often, you're growing dim. If repentance is not a regular pattern and rhythm in your life, you're growing dim. This is how it works. We see a glimpse of our wickedness. And you kind of see how ugly it is. And then you turn. You repent. And then what comes? Joy, peace, rest, refreshment. And then you see a little bit more wickedness. And then you repent. And then you get more joy, peace, rest, refreshment, confidence. It just repeats. It keeps going and going. and go- It never stops, but it never quits working either. Listen, if you hear people repent for things openly, like in a comm group or a DNA group, or you're just with a friend, and they repent for something openly, but in your head you're thinking, that's not such a big deal. I mean, that's a weed in my life, but I'm not really trying to pull it as hard as they are. That's because you're growing dim. You see, the more you grow as a disciple, the more sin you see in your life. But the more sin you see in your life as a growing disciple, the more you repent, the more often you do. And the more you repent from the sin that you see, the more that you grow. And the more patience you have for others, the more love you have for God, the more joy, the more satisfaction, the more content you are. There's a lot for us to grow in when it comes to this. What I have, I give to you, he says. Man, let this be the cry of legacy, church. Let this be the cry of your heart. I don't have a lot. I'm not a superhero. But what I have, I give to you. I give to you. And listen, if you're here and you are maybe not far from the kingdom, as Jesus would say, or maybe you are far from Christ, I mean, the message you can pull from a passage like this is as Peter says, the blood is on your hands. We murdered the author of life. Think of the irony of this. I love how he said that we murdered and brought death to the author of life, right? Who beat the grave, and then put death in the grave itself. There's, there's a beautiful symmetry to this. We did this to him, though. So the call is on you to repent, to repent, to turn, to pivot. Pivot it from making ultimate things, the things in your life, things that are good, things that are bad, demanding that they deliver a satisfaction to you horizontally that your soul was craved to get vertically turning from the satisfaction of this world. It sounds like bad news, but it's the greatest news ever. There is rest for you. There is a clean slate for you. There is refreshment for your dehydrated soul. And like bones being healed and this cripple's feet and his ankles, your soul, your hopes, your dreams snap into alignment. And you can leap. For the first time ever, you can leap and sing 
and laugh and have peace.